Good evening, everybody. I hope you have a handout. I know that uh, they only got here about 10 minutes ago, so if you happen to be here early uh, and you did not get one, they are available in the back. And so tonight, what we are going to be doing as we continue on the uh, kind of our study of the kingdom of God is we are going to look very specifically at uh, what we're titling the kingdom manifesto. And uh, uh, it's actually the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be looking at. So uh, I'll be going through it in the ESV, and so that uh, copy is located located in the pew in front of you, and uh, essentially that's what we're going to be doing. Why don't we begin uh, tonight with a word of prayer, uh, beseeching God's uh, kindness to us as we uh, study this text together. So let's pray. So God, we thank you for <clears throat> Jesus and for um, the kingdom that he has established. Uh, we thank you for uh, the words of instruction that he uh, relates to us. Uh, we are grateful for the opportunity to study that. We thank you for uh, truly that luxury. Uh, there are many in the world uh, that are not able to experience that particular joy. Um, uh, Father, they're uh, too busy trying to, uh, to maintain uh, life to uh, provide for their families. And truly, that's uh, a little bit more of a, of a modern phenomenon um, that so many of us are able to take the time uh, to study like this. And uh, for most of my life, I've completely taken that for granted. And so it's good for us to just stop and be grateful for the peace that we have, uh, grateful for uh, even the prosperity that we have that affords us this incredible opportunity. So we, may we make the most of it. Um, Father, may we, uh, as the, the gratitude, the overflow of our hearts, uh, focus on uh, the fullness of who you are. And may this these, these words, these verses, this text, uh, may it shape our hearts, may it uh, pull our minds um, together, and may, Father, we uh, live our lives in such a way that you would truly be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen. Uh, so I don't know if you are uh, an expert on the sermons of Jesus, but uh, interestingly enough, we love to say that Jesus was this amazing preacher, which obviously I believe that he was. Uh, but when you go back and you look at um, his sermons, they don't probably come across to us like a lot of the sermons that you have to put up with around here. Um, obviously, they are far more profound and deep, and it is truly God himself, Jesus, in, in uh, being the the of God, being God, uh, is, is, is relating information at a much different level than anyone else who ever communicates. But when you look at Jesus' teaching, um, it's not always sermon-esque. He loves to have conversations. Many of um, the descriptions that we have of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels are Jesus' answer to people's questions. Um, sometimes he'll get into a debate with a religious leader. And so Jesus doesn't just pontificate um, truth. But at times, you do have extended, uh, extended messages or extended pieces uh, that are pulling things together. So I want to begin a little bit um, with this kind of a little bit of the background on this sermon. Um, uh, first of all, it is found only in Matthew's gospel. So if you were to go back and say, hey, turn to all the different gospels that have the Sermon on the Mount, the answer is there's not all these different gospels. It is only found in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, there is a very interesting parallel to this sermon um, in Luke's gospel. So in Luke chapter 6, you will see something that is known as the Sermon on the Plain that, uh, that shares a number of things with this particular sermon. I believe uh, Jesus preached many different things. John records at the end of his gospel, that everything that Jesus did and taught was not fully recorded. He says, because in fact, if Jesus, if we, had, if we had written down everything, the world could not contain the books therein, describing just the, the depth and the breadth of the teachings of Jesus. Um, so we, we don't, Mark doesn't record any of this, and Matthew and Mark share a lot of material together. And so this is very uh, peculiar uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, very particular to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, one scholar actually put down this statement that he believes it is the best known, least understood, and then least obeyed. And I want to wrestle with that a little bit. Um, I was actually corrected, which 
Contrary to some popular belief, I don't mind being. Uh, I had someone say to me, I've said this for a, a long time, and I, I had to go back and trace where I picked it up, but you may have heard me say this, that there are no imperatives in the Sermon on the Mount. I've been saying that actually for years. And finally someone said, actually, I went back and I looked, and I found a couple in the Greek. And I went, really? And so I went and I studied it, and there are a few. And I'm thinking, so where did I get that from? And I kind of traced it back to, uh, to an article that I had read a number of years ago describing, um, even though there are a number of imperatives that Jesus is describing, one of the questions that I want you to, to, to wrestle with me tonight is, is Jesus presenting truly a, and this is what you must do? Because the majority of the verbs in this particular text are almost descriptive. Um, and particularly, I think where I have made a mistake is that the Beatitudes, particularly that first section within the Sermon on the Mount, are not written in imperatival or in imperative form. They're not, you need to be a peacemaker. You need to be, it's, it's not that. It's Jesus definitely in the Beatitudes, which is how the sermon begins, is literally describing what a blessed life looks like. So he's not saying you go out and be these things, but as the great preacher Fred Craddock says, when Jesus speaks, even when he doesn't give us a command, you feel it as though it's a command, right? When Jesus describes the way that this blessed life is, you walk away thinking, I want that. I want to be a part of that. So when he says, blessed are the peacemakers or blessed are those who mourn, and he's just saying it as it's a, it's, it's a fact, you think to yourself, I want that in my life, and so I want to act like those things. So there definitely is um, a little bit of that, that command idea that is, that is in it. The Sermon on the Mount, in terms of the background, the Sermon on the Mount appears to be Jesus' description of what he expects his followers to be and so, and to do. And let me just give you a good picture for this, which we have talked about a number of different times here at the church because we love to describe what we do here um, as making disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. And it's good for us to wrestle with um, right belief, what we, what we, what we think and, and who we are, and then how that actually relates to our lifestyle, uh, which the Bible talks uh, um, all through it, right? I mean, just consistently, the Bible speaks that a follower of God or a follower of Jesus, somebody who is faithful to God, there is a, an expectation in terms of how we live our lives. So to try to say a Christian can be anything or to do anything really isn't a truth, actually. The Bible, there is a conformity, and I've been preaching on that in our, in our winter series. And so let me give you something that was really helpful for me to see, is that when we look at God in his, one of his relational attributes, God as Father, um, that we then can relate to him as our Father. So then what do we do with our fathers? And many of us, recognize the need for us to display obedience to our fathers. Um, I grew up with that. My dad um, would, 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 would stress that. Uh, my dad kind of had that, I'm going to ask you to do things, and he would point at me and I'd be, and then I will do them all gladly, right? I mean, that's kind of how my dad was. Um, that was my rule with my boys. I say, and they would look back at me and they would say, we do. And I would say, good, just as long as we understand how this relationship works and I'll pay the rent and the food. So that's how this relationship works. So obedience is part of the relationship that we have with even with our God. So we know that, right? You're not surprised by this. There is an obedience factor. The problem is, is that when we look at God as our father or as our, as our king would be another way that we could look at him, um, sometimes when God commands our obedience, then as we obey, that we gain our identity in him. I'm an obedient child. I'm an obedient child. I'm an obedient child, which is not a bad thing. The Bible talks about that. The, the concern is that do we find our identity in our obedience? And this is kind of one of the major questions that church people ask. And what I would come along now and, and let me kind of say is, I think the arrows are wrong. Let me kind of change the, the, the paradigm. Instead of us trying to relate to the Father through our obedience, I think the danger of this, um, even that we see what Jesus is confronting in the Sermon on the Mount, is an, an obedience-based uh, relationship with God where then you get legalism and you get a little bit of this, you owe me. 
right? I earned my identity as opposed to my identity as gift. So instead of it being a matter of God commands obedience and when we obey, then we find our identity, does the Bible describe it different? Does the Bible essentially say that God out of his grace or out of his kindness, out of his, the, the, the gift of this, does he call us to himself? And then, sure, we respond to that, right? We, we accept this wonderful gift that we have and that we find our identity in, and I would argue the New Testament describes it best, the works of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we become adopted. In Jesus, we, we receive this incredible identity that we are, in essence, Christian because of not what we do. It's not the, all the wonderful things that I do, the kindness that I show that forms my identity, but at the very core of my identity, the righteousness that I have, according to the Bible, is an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that I find by Christ, Paul says, through faith. In Philippians 3 would be a good text um, among many. So we respond to God's grace through faith. And then, because I'm a big obedience guy, that obedience then becomes the natural result of who we are. That as children of God who have received this grace, who have, have, have partaken of this, then the natural, and you, I love to talk about that um, with, with those who are followers of Jesus Christ, that so much of our life should be lived out as a natural response to God's grace. Now, when I say that, I mean, I, I, I will understand and I will agree with you that there are times in which we struggle. Um, the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers describe this, this, this war in the flesh that we have, um, and, and, but it, he, he seems to describe it consistently as a war in which the Holy Spirit that now lives in us clearly is victorious, ultimately. So I'm in this constant state of refinement, this constant state of being sanctified because the spirit that is at work in me is greater than the spirit that is at work in the world. So therefore, I find an obedience to God out of a result of my understanding of my identity that I have in Jesus Christ. And then the working out of that obedience returns to the Father in an act, either we could describe it, of worship for his glory. And this, this, this paradigm has been really helpful for me to see. Um, how do we understand ourselves? Do we find ourselves trying to gain our identity through good works? Or do we find ourselves, as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 describes it, living out our identity as obedient children because God has made us alive in Christ and he, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 10 concludes with, um, in terms of our good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So that whole question that we uh, kind of wrestled with as, as followers of Jesus um, uh, for my entire life, is it faith or works? Is it faith or works? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The works that I do are a, Paul seems to argue uh, rather clearly, um, it is the working of the Spirit in connection with me, this new nature that I now have, this new spiritual nature that God has given to me by grace through faith is this working out, and that is my obedience. Therefore, no one can stand before God and say, you owe me, I worked my way to be your son, but instead I am responding to your kindness to me in Jesus Christ. So this, sometimes, I don't know if that picture helps you see it. It really does help me. And when you go the other way, we have problems. Um, and, and I really think a little bit that's what Jesus is hitting here. So there is the to be, peace. And then there is the to do, peace. Um, my good friend Drew Moss probably gets the most credit for it around here, although if he's honest, he wasn't the first one to, to, to come up with it. But a statement he used in a sermon a while back, I keep hearing people here uh, quote, that the more that we tell people who they are, the less we have to remind them what to do. That's an old famous preacher's line, and it's good for us to remember that. The more that I remind um, uh, others, or the more that I'm even reminded myself, who am I? I am a child of God. 
Who am I? I'm a redeemed child of God. I think so often if we could just even see each other, um, who, is, who is this? This is my brother, Tom, and we are one in Jesus Christ. That totally, that totally changes how I might be tempted to treat him when I'm angry or vice versa, when we understand who we are. C.S. Lewis actually says that we would, be, we would be tempted to fall down and almost worship one another if we fully understood who we were in Jesus Christ. So there definitely is a to be, there definitely is also a to do, and let's just make sure that we uh, keep the order of that right. So this particular sermon, Jesus describes what life in the kingdom is going to look like. The second thing I want to talk about tonight, um, before we just dive right into the sermon, is uh, considering this sermon as counterculture. Counterculture. So not only as Jesus is describing it, so here's, here's Jesus, and he does a wonderful job. There's an understatement of the night. Jesus does a wonderful job um, arguing against two different things. And the one part that Jesus will consistently argue against is how the world does things. He's not afraid to say, do not, do not pray as the pagans do. He says, don't, um, don't actually act as a leader like worldly leaders act. He really warns against such things. He says, this is a, a destructive habit. Don't pray like them. Don't, uh, don't, don't act. Don't treat each other like them. And so Jesus comes along and he offers this, this alternative way of living than the world. The nature of following Jesus, the nature of it, is actually countercultural. But when the church conforms to the world's standards... And then therefore these two communities, the church and the world, when the church conforms to that and it appears to the average person that they're two forms of the same thing, then what we actually have is the church betraying its nature. So in this winter series, when the church conforms, and this is, I guess, one of the reasons why I've always, I've always wrestled when people say, well, the church is guilty of this. I, I, I first of all want to say, well, if that's true, if the church is guilty of, of any impropriety, if the, if the church in its history has been guilty of racism, if the church has been guilty of sexism, if the church has been guilty of taking advantage of the poor, if the church has been guilty, of, you, you name the sin that the church may have been guilty of, the church didn't follow Jesus and get there though, right? So let, let's be honest about our failures, but I, I guess the part that bristles against me, it's that Somehow, like all of it, like the, the fullness of the bride of Christ kind of takes blame in that. It's almost like, yeah, Jesus' people can't do any better than Muhammad's people, who can't do any better than Buddha's people, who can't do any better than... And I want to say, well, but the truth is, is that if all the other religions of the world... This I, I mean, is getting less and less popular for me to say, sadly enough, even in the church, but I will still say it. If all of the religions, religions of the world followed their teachers fully... Christianity is the only one that would stand out flawless, flawless. We would make no mistakes in our treatment of one another. There would be no racism, no sexism, no exploitation of the poor. There would be none of that that exists. There'd be no violence like that that would not exist. It is when we fail, right? So that's the part that I want to see is that what Jesus is going to be calling us to is a different standard than the world, so I don't know about you, but right now I'm just getting a little, ugh, this is making me a little uncomfortable <laughs> because I, I, I even meet Christian people who love to describe um, their life as being normal. I don't know if your kids have ever said this to you, but I don't like, I don't like not being normal. I, I, I want to be like everybody else. And I've even heard Christian parents, and by Christian parents, I mean probably me, not my wife, say, no, 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 no don't worry, don't worry. I mean, we're going to be the same as everybody else. I'm not asking you to be that different. One of my favorite stories, um, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm listening to someone else speak, it was a, 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 a person that I, that I care about dearly who was growing in Jesus Christ and it was making their spouse uncomfortable. And the spouse said, I don't, you're changing. I don't like the person you're becoming. And by the way, not that they were bad, they were becoming like Jesus and that can create a tension in a marriage, by the way, Okay. So it's not the more you become like Jesus, just everything gets better. No, the more Jesus was very clear about who he was, there were problems in his own family, okay? 
And so as this one spouse was critiquing this other spouse saying, I don't like who you're becoming, the spouse responded, I haven't changed. Now, now I, I think this person was trying to say was, I still love you, I still care about you, but I confronted them and I said, no, you have changed. And you need to be honest about the transformation that is taking place in your life. The truth is your priorities have changed. The truth is how you're approaching your marriage has changed. The truth is the organizing even of your calendar with more of a God-centered devotion to go, gather, and grow is changing. And to try to look at your spouse and say nothing has changed is not true. And I think we need to own that. I mean, think about it. If what you're telling your kids is they can follow Jesus and not experience any kind of discomfort, then I don't know what you're calling your children to. We are to be countercultural from the world around us. Now, the other piece that I want to go after is that not only does Jesus kind of talk about the pagan world and the Gentile world and say, don't be like them, but Jesus also wants to come along and say, and there is a religious component that is broken as well. Jesus comes along in terms of the religious uh, establishment, and Jesus says, hey, I want you to understand that you're not to be like them either, which is interesting for us, because sometimes we see in this portrayal that we are to not be this, but we are to be this. And by the way, if you're talking religious, as James describes it, as caring for widows and orphans, and I'm all for religion, so the word can be used both positively and negatively. Today, I want to describe a, a religiosity that does not have the glory of God at its core. It has the appearance, as Paul says in Colossians 2, it has the appearance of wisdom, but it does not have any its staying power. Um, Paul actually describes this to Timothy um, as being rather wicked. I mean, Paul will describe rather wicked things and then say this, having the appearance of godliness. And I love to remind people that um, not only does, does, uh, does Jesus, but the other New Testament writers seem to go after rather strongly um, pretense, religious pretense. And that's something that as church folk, we really wrestle with. You know, and, and it's always easier for me to see it in other denominations, hard to see it in my own. It's either for me to see in other people, never in my own. But essentially it is a, uh, the word that we would use describing this um, is hypocrisy. There is a hypocritical nature to this. And this is one of the major confrontations that Jesus has with his own uh, religious establishment of the day. Jesus looks out at these um, uh, religious experts, these teachers of the law, and he accuses them of being some rather ugly things. He confuses, he calls them whitewashed tombs, which essentially are places that could make people unclean but the people didn't know that they were walking into unclean, uh, an unclean situation. So in essence, Jesus describes them as polluting agents, but they're doing it in a very deceitful way. The other thing, and I was, I was teaching this in one of my earlier classes today from 1 John, but Jesus seems to have this view, and I'll take, I'll take a major weight on, on for me as a, as a Bible teacher. I'll even put myself out there in this way. If after me or anyone in leadership around here is preaching or teaching and you walk away feeling like I, either I can't do that or that just makes it sound harder, then something is broken. And I'll even put the ownership on us. I think it's we need to make following Jesus not easier by by lowering his expectation. But Jesus says to the Pharisees, doesn't he? I love this statement. He says, you do nothing to help people. You put burdens upon them. Essentially, the way I was trying to describe it today was um, when, when Jesus, so the Sermon on the Mount can't be this. It's kind of like, hey, by the way, while you're, while you're walking around, I want you to carry this. Okay, I'll carry. It's going to get heavy after a while. And, then, and, the, and, the, and the Pharisees love to do this. Let me add one more thing. And so you're walking around, you're kind of pushing a whiteboard, and you're going, really, I need all this stuff? This is all that I need. And Jesus really attacks this and says, you do not do anything to ease their obedience to God. Like, is that your responsibility as a parent or as a teacher? And again, I'm not talking about easing it by making, by, by reducing it. But Jesus accuses the Pharisaical teachers 
of making their burden heavier. So Jesus comes along and what does he say? But if you follow me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My burden is light. And that concept of yoke, most scholars will actually tie it back to the concept that a, a rabbi's yoke was his teaching. And Jesus' teaching was light. Not, not crazy, not, listen, not, not simplistic, but it was accurate. Jesus actually considered his ministry as a, a means by unshackling the religious leaders. And so I think that's how we need to make sure that we consider this particular sermon is that not Jesus making life in the kingdom more complicated, but actually I would argue by the time you're done this message, you should have a clearer, more inspiring um, picture of what life in the kingdom actually looks like. Well, let's jump into the sermon itself. And so if you have your Bibles, um, I don't know if I'll read all of it, but I definitely want to make sure that we're uh, covering the big sections because I'm actually going to try to teach all three of these chapters here um, tonight. So let's look at verses one and two and just kind of take a look at um, uh, kind of how Matthew sets this up. By the way, um, I don't know if I've told you guys, but we're headed to Israel in May of next year. And uh, one, of my, one of my favorite places was where they believe this sermon took place. Um, and so right now, let me just say this, right now in your mind, how many of you have not been to Israel? Raise your hand if you've not been there. Okay. So I want you to picture what it looks like. Yeah, you're probably wrong. Um, but for how many of you have been there? How many of you been to Israel? Been right to where this sermon was preached, where they believe the sermon was preached? Like, in, and right now, can you see it? I mean, it's kind of cool to be able to see it. And the Sea of Galilee is right there. And it's just this, wow, like on this mountainside. Um, so I just, I absolutely love that. And so here's how Matthew describes that. See, uh, May 28th through June 9th, Tom. I hope you can come with us. So seeing the crowds, this whole sermon actually is taking place um, during uh, the popular phase of Jesus's uh, ministry. Jesus was not always popular, but it's definitely the start of his ministry. Everywhere he went, there were crowds. Some scholars believe that he actually, uh, that this was a partial removal away from um, a lot of the, the, the popularity that was going on. I mean, because he's going up onto a mountain, fewer people are going to follow him. So uh, there's at least some that, that would argue that. Seeing the crowds, he went up onto a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, so this is a message that he is giving. I believe the crowds are either overhearing or the crowds may not be intimately connected to this, but I think the way the sermon ends appears to insinuate that there are uh, a number of people that are, are definitely listening to this. The other thing that it's important for you to see, one of the reasons why we call it the Sermon on the Mount is obviously this is where Matthew describes it, and mountains play a big part of Matthew's description of Jesus. I think one of the reasons why Luke has a Sermon on the Plain and Matthew has a Sermon on the Mount is how the idea of mountain mountain for, uh, for Matthew is a way of picturing Jesus as this new Moses. Luke, uh, Mark, and John probably not writing primarily to a Jewish audience, Matthew definitely doing so. So you see a lot of the, the, the emphasis that Matthew has having a Jewish context describing the genealogy that goes back to David, that goes back to Abraham, um, the fact that in the uh, temptation Matthew has the final temptation uh, between Jesus and Satan. He has him taking him up to a high mountain, whereas in, in Luke's gospel, he has him taking him to the temple. Um, this is the only place where, uh, where, where you have a description of Jesus preaching from a mountain. In Matthew's gospel, uh, there are five, which is a big number if you're trying to compare Jesus to Moses, you have five extended discourses, this being the first of the five. And so as you, as you see this, there really is a little bit of a connection, most scholars believe, that, that Matthew is making um, with Jesus to the, the new and the greater Moses himself. And he even is going to talk here in a moment about what the law actually looks like. So Jesus is now going to begin to describe, and I'm indebted to, um, uh, to John R. W. Stott in terms of, I took his outline in terms of how he's describing this because I thought he did a really good job uh, kind of highlighting each section 
section as we walk through it. So the first thing that we're going to look at is verses 3 through 12. Um, we call them the Beatitudes. Uh, John Stott calls it the character of a disciple. And again, these are uh, mentioned in uh, indicative form. He is describing what a blessed person looks like. I want you to think about how countercultural, even how somewhat counter-religious these words might actually be. I'd like to read all of these. Jesus actually says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke, on the Sermon on the Plain, just has blessed are the poor. And Luke, in, in his rendition of this, and I believe a sermon that Jesus preached in a different location at a different time, but in Luke's rendition of this, he has a series of blesseds and then a series of woes. And the blessed, blessed are those who are poor, and then a woe to you who are rich. But here, we just have a series of blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, or kind of, the, kind of this concept of um, uh, uh, not, not being proud. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. That is actually a, a kind of a very strong teaching that comes out of the Proverbs. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, one of the greatest pictures of meekness is that of something that is powerful, but yet also under restraint. Um, there are kind of two figures in the Bible that are described as meek, one obviously being Jesus, the other one actually being Moses, which is interesting. Number six, blessed are, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Um, it's interesting, and again, the word blessed can mean happy or uh, some, I think in uh, uh, Eugene Peterson's, uh, I think he has like congratulations as kind of the way he describes this. Uh, congratulations, those of you who are hunger, hunger and thirst for righteousness. One of the things that you will actually see in this particular sermon is that in certain areas, God will reward things. And so for those of us that, that want to know, like, what will God just automatically grant us? One of the things, if you go through the Bible, God grants wisdom to those who ask for it. And when you hunger and thirst for righteousness sake, he seems to argue, Jesus, you will be, in essence, satisfied. Number seven, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. And I want you to kind of hold on to these ideas as we move through the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, it's not just in today's culture, but pure and pure in heart is just not something that we uh, consider to be that admirable. Um, we're definitely uh, in, a, in a different place. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then this is, I think, the most surprising one of all. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And by the way, just track back, what does he say? That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied and one of the things that you will find in that pursuit is persecution, or you may find persecution. And then notice this, notice the switch to the second person, you, here. And blessed are you. So you've got these general blesseds, and then now he's talking more directly to his disciples. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account. So one of the things that you're going to see that Jesus is not doing is that Jesus is not calling us to general value, Christian value-based living. But Jesus is essentially, so it's not just values, Jesus actually is calling you to himself. And there's a big difference here. It's not blessed are, is anyone Whoever goes through any kind of difficulty, because if you go through difficulty, God will honor that, whatever difficulty that is. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when others revile you, when others say all these kinds of evil things against you on account of me. And so Jesus is not offering a generic way of living, but a description of life when we live for him. And then notice the kind of the interesting part of verse 12, 
Um, how do we handle these, uh, these accusations or these difficult times? This is countercultural. What do you do when people revile you? Um, well, you just get back at them on Facebook. What do you do when people make fun of you? What do you do when people critique you, when people do these things? Um, it's interesting, Jesus' response here is, in his kingdom you rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I've preached a number of sermons from um, the, the persecution that you see in the early chapters in the book of Acts. It was just, though, in my recent study of this that I found this connection. Do you know the story? Um, in the book of Acts, when the disciples were persecuted because of the name of Jesus, what was their response? They would, they would, they would leave that. They would literally be threatened. Do not go and speak in his name any longer. And they, one time Peter says, hey, listen, <laughs> like we're gonna keep doing this. You do what you do, you beat us. We do what we do best, which is make the name of Jesus famous. So you do what you do, we're gonna do what we do. When they go back, what did they do? They praised God for being considered worthy to suffer for his name. It's really like the, the result of this verse right here well, how do we handle difficulty? I, I think that one of the best ways, if, let, let's say, and I, I think it's happening, if culture is pulling away from the church, then we have an opportunity, again, to respond like the church in the book of Acts. I think this is one thing that the church in the West is really missing, is that instead of just getting angry, and instead of like writing your congress, I mean, Jesus doesn't say, and, 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 and when someone says, write your congressman and make them stop. That's what I love about Voice of the Martyrs out of Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Um, their primary emphasis is not, how do we use political structures to stop the persecution of the church? That's not their primary goal. That's a worldly way of trying to deal with the persecution of the church. So as we move in positions of difficulty um, and being ostracized, as we move into those, how should we respond, literally? Jesus seems to say that we rejoice, in what sense? That we would be considered worthy to suffer for his name. Um, I don't know a lot of people in our context that do that. Um, it just seems like the, 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 the smallest little accusation against us, we become deeply offended. And then we become antagonistic against them. I'll show you, I'll fix you. You can't take away my right to, you can't my, well. Do you realize that um, you may have the right to do that, but now you've lost the privilege of giving a countercultural response. Anyone can argue for their right to do something, but as kingdom workers, what do we do? We say, hey, um, we are grateful to be considered worthy to suffer for the name. So the next thing that I want to uh, talk about, so that's the, the character of a disciple. Um, and let me, let me tell you, one of the, one of the ways that I, uh, Matthew's gospel is, is one of the, the strongest wisdom type uh, books of the, of the New Testament. And uh, I think this, this chapter kind of gives credence to that. Uh, my, my father did a great job teaching me, uh, to the best of his ability, uh, teaching me the, a, a desire, or kind of helping instill in me a desire um, to, to read the Bible, particularly its wisdom literature. Um, and you can even kind of get a, a proverbial sense, right? The book of Proverbs kind of a sense. Proverbs kind of writes like these Beatitudes, um, which by the way, uh, here's, here's what I want to say. When Jesus gives these blessed are those who, blessed are those who, blessed are those, to, are those who, when he does that and you choose not to do it, do you realize then you are less for that? We, we, when we choose to not follow this, when we choose to not value these things, not treating them like values, but when we choose to value these things of what life in the kingdom, life following Jesus Christ looks like, then I think we lose a lot of the blessed are you. We lose a lot of the happiness that we might find. We lose a lot of the congratulations that we would receive from our heavenly father. Second thing I wanna look at, just a few short verses, so therefore I wanna read them all, is the influence of a disciple in the kingdom. The influence of a disciple in the kingdom. Verses 13 through 16 
Jesus continues, you are the salt of the earth. And salt kind of has uh, kind of a kind of two concepts to it. Um, one of them is that it has a preservative nature to it. Salt would be one of the primary ways. They don't have refrigeration back then, right? So salt would be the, one of the primary ways that you can do that. So it, it does that. The second thing that almost all scholars talk about is not only does salt preserve, therefore the church has a preservative nature to it, but it also has a flavor. It, it, it really does um, affect whatever it's, um, it's being put on. So you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be, how its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, that which um, um, exposes things, that which clarifies things. Uh, the Bible loves to describe light as good and darkness as evil. Um, this is probably most described in John's gospel, but here Jesus describes this. You are the light of the world and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house in the same way. Let your light shine. Um, I, I think this is, again, one of my concerns that, uh, and we're going to see how this affects the entire sermon, is that Jesus isn't contradicting himself. I want you to hold on to this verse, because later on he's going to say, hey, by the way, when you give, give like this, and when you pray, pray like this. But here, what is he saying? Let your influence be seen by all, because he says this, um, uh, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works for the purpose of giving glory to your Father who is in heaven. So don't just throw out <laughs> this verse here. Don't let the other verses in this particular sermon um, somehow completely confuse what Jesus is teaching. So right now, if we're just kind of listening to his sermon, if you were to ask, hey, we, we, you know, I turn to Brother Tom and I say, what did he just say? And Tom would say, he said that we need to do our good works in front of others so that God might be glorified. And I go, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And then other times we're going to see how this is going to change a little bit. So notice that there is a profound influence that the church is to have on its culture. It illuminates, it preserves, it flavors. So to try to, this is one of the reasons why in our winter series, we wanted to make sure that there was an engagement aspect to what we're doing. How can we hide? How can we cover it up? No, we're actually called to be um, intentional and missional in the way that we live our lives. The next section that I want to highlight is the righteousness of a disciple in the kingdom. Um, sadly enough, in our culture, whenever the word righteous is usually used, it's almost described as self-righteous. Weirdly enough, in our culture, and I even say church culture, righteous is a word that is undervalued. It is not appreciated like it should. Holiness and righteousness. By the way, all coming from God who is righteous and holy, but we don't take our own righteousness given to us by God in many ways, both imparted as Christ and then even our own good works are described as righteous in the Bible. They're not valued or appreciated. And so Jesus, interestingly enough, is not against righteous living. It's just the right kind of righteousness. So in verse 17, Jesus, this Moses figure that we see in Matthew's account, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which all of the gospels lift this up as the main accusation that the Jewish leaders are giving. So Jesus speaks against the law and against the temple, and Jesus makes it clear, hey, listen, I am not coming to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's how Jesus explains his purpose in coming. I'm not coming here to undo all that God has done. I am here as the kind of the, ta-da, the exclamation point in terms of all of what God has done. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is the kind of the, this really tiny little thing, not even a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and then teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, in this context, that's not a good thing. Okay, so you gotta be go, well, I thought Jesus wants us to be the least. You're right, usually he does, but in this context, it's not good. 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and then teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and this is why I think it's good for us to realize there, has, there is some kind of imperatival or some kind of commanding force that Jesus is giving in this sermon. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is actually calling us to do, he's, not, he's calling us to himself. The second thing is that Jesus is calling us to a greater righteousness. A greater righteousness, which I think this picture may actually help us because this greater righteousness is not just what we do, but in essence, it becomes who we are. And so this is what we see in terms of the righteousness of a disciple is something that Jesus calls his followers to demonstrate before others. You're the light of the world and when they, people see your good works, they're going to do it. And Jesus' Jesus's command to us is not don't be like a Pharisee and have nothing to do with them at all. No, Jesus says, listen, I get, I think this is what Jesus says. I hear where they're coming from. I know what they're doing. But the problem is, is that they really aren't following the law. They really aren't following what Moses would teach. Jesus says in John 5, that if you, speaking to the religious leaders, if you really did believe Moses, you would believe me. You would follow me. And what Jesus is calling um, his disciples to do is the fullness of what God always intended them to be or to do, which then becomes a righteousness. So um, as the apostle Paul describes in, say, Romans 6, the law is not the problem. The law is not the problem. The law is a wonderful thing. The law in Galatians is a school teacher that helps us know who God is. The problem is, is that when we use the law, as a means of grace. That's what the Apostle Paul warns against. Don't use the law as a means to. Paul, I think, in the book of Romans, describes the law as wonderful in terms of its prescription of the problem. But when the Apostle Paul looks at the law and says, listen, the law is holy and the law is good, but all the law can do at its best is describe the problem and describe the disconnect. But you realize that Jesus Christ can fill the gap. Therefore, as someone who studied the law and appreciated the law, and according to Paul, he actually did everything in the law and still found himself in need of Jesus. And that's kind of where he's coming from. Uh, when he says in, in, uh, in the book of uh, Philippians chapter three, he describes, I want a righteousness, not from the things that I have done, but a righteousness that he doesn't use this word, but that actually exceeds what I do. And this is what Jesus is calling them to hear. Let's move down to the next one. The devotion of a disciple. Uh, well, no, actually, let me, let, me, let me continue on. There's a couple things I want to, let, let me go through. This is kind of that famous section where Jesus describes um, within, uh, within the righteousness of a disciple. Um, I want to I I kind of attach this to um, this anger and lust or adultery and divorce and oaths um, and then also with, with the uh, concept of retaliation and then loving your enemies, notice that the righteousness that Jesus is describing is not just this action outward. Um, and, and the phrase that Jesus keeps using in this is, you've heard it said. Most likely, and we'll see this at the end of the sermon, most likely what Jesus is picking up on in here is that the rabbis are trying to explain what the law says or what the law means, and they get hung up on <clears throat> things like we shouldn't murder and we shouldn't commit adultery. And these become the descriptions. And then what the, what the, what the religious leaders, and by the way, we can do this too, what the religious leaders are notorious for doing is they love to, to build a little bit of a kind of a hedge around it and then say, but by the way, you can kind of dance around this. Adultery. Do you know people that do this? There are two kinds of approaches. One of the approaches, you know, don't commit adultery. Um, I've, heard, I've heard men say this. Um, you can look, you can shop, but you just can't buy. You heard that? For having lustful looks at people, right? Actually, that's probably not just a male problem. You can look, but you just can't buy, right? So it, it gives that mentality. I mean, that's not righteousness. You, you don't have this dancing around it. Now, partly, interestingly enough, the Pharisees had a little bit of a dancing around it, while at the same time, 
when it came to like an oath, they also had kind of an interesting approach of building walls around it, (laughs) making it far, far, and far more complicated um, to break it. They were so concerned about breaking certain laws that they would make not just this oath way, or one of the most notorious ones that we have is on Sabbath breaking. They would say, not only can we not work on the Sabbath, but then they would describe different levels of working. Um, When you're in Israel, by the way, I'm going going to be there next May. Um, When you're in Israel, there's actually like a button on the elevator that the rabbis in Israel kind of made, uh, they made a ruling that you're allowed to push it. It's the Sabbat button. And it essentially, you just push it once and it'll take you to all the floors. So if you're on Sabbat or Sabbath, um, you can't actually push, push your floor, you push, but you're allowed to. The rabbis decided you can push the Sabbat button. That's not work. You push six, that is work. Sabbat is not work, right? I mean, they, they, they had to do these things. You can appreciate their devotion, but the rabbi said, and Jesus cuts through the times in which they dance around it, um, Jesus goes after them in Mark chapter seven with the idea that you can violate the commandment about honoring your father and your mother by following a rabbinical crazy trail where you, um, instead of providing for your parents, you list all of your goods as Corbin or devoted to God. And then I can look at my parents and say, hey, I'd love to help you out. I know you're starving to death, but the truth is I've dedicated it to God. And then the, 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 the kind of the interesting state of it was, and then when your parents died, you, you, you literally, you go back on your oath, you pay a penalty, and you get your stuff back. And Jesus says, this is how you guys think. And that's not righteousness, right? So don't dance around things. Jesus cuts to the core and says, I'm not, I'm not impressed if you don't murder. A follower of me doesn't hate in his heart. And I'm not oppressed if just you, you, you flirt around this, but you don't commit adultery. What I want to ask you is, do you have lust in your heart? Now, one major misunderstanding that a lot of Christians have is Jesus isn't equating adultery in the heart with adultery or murder with um, hatred. He's not saying they're equal, but he is saying what I'm calling you to is a greater righteousness. And so often as Christians, we're not spurring one another on to greater levels of righteousness. In the end, we're pretty happy with just kind of getting by with the least amount possible. That's not a kingdom person. Um, you know, I don't know. This will be, be a really, really big one. When you look at, um, I'm going to need my glasses here. When you look down on uh, verse 38 and following through the end of that chapter, um, this is where it gets interesting. We can get all excited about uh, what what Jesus teaches. Um, And then all of a sudden you've got these difficult verses which talk about retaliation and love for your enemies. And that's where we go, oh yeah, I think Jesus probably overstated there. Like, I don't know if I'm supposed to do that. That whole turn the other cheek thing, really? Yeah, that's crazy. Why do you think we have the second amendment? That's not, we don't do that. We don't turn cheeks, right? That's That's just crazy talk. And yet Jesus says, no, this is what we do. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. Um, And I'm not even trying to say it's brutally simple. I don't know if I always answered that question. I wrestled with it. I mean, I'll just, to be honest, I mean, I wrestled with that when my, when definitely when my kids were younger and none of them were like, were overly bullied or overly, but I don't know if I had a turn the other cheek model for my family, you know, even with each other. One of my rules was, well, if your brother hits you, hit him back. Just be careful around the face, okay? We don't want to do that. But your brother hits you, hit him back. And I'm thinking, looking back, I kind of wish I had taught more of this Jesus picture here. Um, and what's, in a very, what's really interesting is, is that when you look at the, the description in terms of how we're supposed to do this, in terms of love for our enemies, um, the, the basic concept for this, in terms of why we don't retaliate and why we love our enemies, is because that is what God does. Therefore, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect comes from that section where God sends his reign on both the just and the unjust. Be like him. So this is the way that God deals with those who are against him. 
Next, number five, the devotion of a disciple, chapter six, verses one through 18. Um, When we look at what kind of shapes a disciple's life, um, notice that there is a a devotion that begins by uh, kind of responding back to the many commands that that God has given to his people. And now Jesus continues on. Um, Giving to the needy is one of the different things that, that he describes here. Now you can see this clear line that he is drawing between um, the Pharisees, between the religious leaders of his day. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is really hitting on this one here, which both his disciples as well as uh, the crowds would, would resonate with or would at least hear. And what does he say? When you give, here is how you give. You give in such a way that you're not drawing attention to yourself because the Pharisees were great at that. And then he gives them a whole different way of, of, uh, of kind of thinking about things, about praying. Um, he basically says, listen, if when, you, when you pray, this is how you are to pray. He says, uh, beginning in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Therefore, pray like this. And gives an incredible picture. And if you look at kind of the, kind of the, one of the overarching themes of this, it's our father who is in heaven, hallow or holy be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as your will is done in heaven. So that's why I want to consider this entire sermon here as a kingdom manifesto. Jesus is describing essentially this prayer that we see, the great Lord's Prayer, which we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer that uh, the disciples, um, in terms of their wanting to know how to pray, Jesus says, this is how you need to pray. How should we pray? We should pray God's kingdom which exists, which is very real, may that be the world that you and I are striving to make around us. And so he talks about, give us today our daily bread. And he, and he talks about, teach us to avoid sin and temptation, like free us from that, like rescue us from that. Um, help us to forgive others like you've forgiven. I mean, all of the pictures of the Lord's Prayer, which I think this is one of the concerns that I have when we just recite it. When we just kind of walk through it mindlessly, we fail to see that the Lord's prayer is our desire for God's kingdom and God's world to exist in our world. It is the bringing together of heaven and earth. So that's at the, kind of at the, at the very core, which I think this entire um, sermon describes. And then as you continue on, he describes fasting, um, uh, and he kind of describes how you are to fast. And then after that, he talks about the danger of um, laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which kind of gives uh, kind of an alternative way of, um, um, uh, of looking at wealth and the way that we, uh, the way that we do things. Um, but by the time we hit this verse 19, um, we actually see that not only we're we talking about the devotion of a disciple in terms of giving and praying, but now we're going to start talking about um, or the devotion of a disciple, but now the motivation of a disciple. What is it that, that, that drives us? And for many of us, it might be fame and it might be fortune. Um, what drives us might even be the concerns that we have. And in verses 19 through verse 34, what we actually see is an alternative way of, of, of looking at this world and what really becomes the impetus for, um, for how we organize our, our time and our efforts and our attention. And this is the, the famous section in verse 19 where Jesus says, And do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so Jesus gives an alternative way of looking at our Wealth, and he is describing this um, this painful truth that he's going to continue on in the in the message and say, like you cannot serve both God and man. You cannot serve both God and mammon or money. That you're going to have to pick. Like, what is your motivation? And what Jesus is describing is a completely different way of looking at our material goods. Um, I don't know about you. I I know how to store up. Uh, it's amazing when I, I look around and I see, like, not only are our houses not enough. I heard, I remember a preacher one time saying this. Like, we actually made houses for our cars, like garages. 
Um, we, I, I remember walking in and my closet's not near this big. You know, mine's just big, but there's this other person's really big. Uh, Andrew and I were staying with some friends one time and uh, we went into their closet and their closet and like their bathroom had like couches in them. I'm like, wow, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, we actually have rooms for our clothes. <laughs> we have a whole room for our clothes. I'm, my clothes need their own room, right? When you think about how much we, and, and by the way, here's the other thing that I find amazing is that now one of the, one of the, one of the fastest growing industries in America, you know what it is? Storage. Because we don't have enough in our houses, which are kind of small anyway. Um, we actually need extra places to put our stuff. So, and, and, and here's the good news. As followers of Jesus Christ, that's not us. Right? Anybody else? You don't raise, you have to raise your hand. Anybody else just convicted by this? Don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Um, I, I remember a good friend of mine. I won't say who, who, won't say who it is because Drew Moss hates it when I single him out, but... Um, I'm grateful for my brother who uh, was a, it was probably the first couple of years that he was here. Um, and he looked at me and he said with just this, I really desire to be faithful to Jesus. And I, Jim, I, I'm willing to learn from you. And I remember one of the first times he came over to my house, he said, do you ever wrestle with living in a house this big? And, and honestly, I, I don't know if you, I, I always feel awkward when people are like talking about that to my face. And, and yet I'm grateful that he, in his kindness, and even in his own humility, was asking me, as just a Christian brother, to give an account for how I live. And we don't do that much with each other, do we? And I don't, I don't, and I, I honestly, I didn't look at him. I mean, it was awkward, I'll be honest. It was awkward, but I was actually grateful. I was grateful for the opportunity to say, yeah, I'm still wrestling with this. I'm still trying to figure out what this means. Now, here, let me, let me end on this. I'm not going to get as far as I wanted to. We'll come back and we'll finish it next week. But let me, let me challenge you on this. Whenever you come across these things, when you're persecuted, rejoice and be glad. Yeah, but. You realize you're arguing with Jesus with that yeah, but. And by the way, um, don't retaliate. If someone strikes you, turn the other. Well, yeah, but. Realize who you're fighting with. That in terms of, hey, don't store so up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, yeah, but, and I'm, by the way, I'm not even saying it's as simple as that we don't have anything. It truly is, it truly is complicated. I'm just wanting to, just for a moment, to ask, am I really trying to follow the words of Jesus Christ? Am I really trying to live a counter cultural way? Like, listen, um, I'm, I'm really not here to be appeased by you because you will not be my final judge. As much as I love my brother Drew, I wasn't so much concerned what Drew thought about me. He wasn't my primary concern at that moment. I was feeling as Jesus was watching me. And that somehow, even though it had Drew's face, <laughs> Jesus was asking me that question. Love you guys. We will see you Sunday.